This is Chicago saxophonist Rajiv Halim, and you're listening to Behind the Note Podcast with Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, thank you for pressing play on this episode of Behind the Note Podcast. So happy that you decided to join us today. Today's guest is a great person to have because he's going to talk to us about how he began to play with legends of our time. He's also going to tell us how to approach your pro career from the time that you decide that you want to be a professional musician. What do you do? He's going to give us his advice and and I guess what he did uh, once he made that decision. He's also going to talk to us about what it really means to sign with the record label so that you may decide if it's right for you or not. And I know a lot of people have already made up their minds on this topic, but it's always good to have different perspectives. Today's guest is from Baltimore, Maryland, USA, and is a Mac Avenue recording artist has worked with Christian McBride, Bobby Watson, Mogu Miller, and many other legends of our time. I'm happy to bring to you right now, vibraphonist, Warren Wolf. Warren, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Man, you live life to the fullest, from what I can tell. I really like that. I saw a, a video of you on Twitter lifting, what, 100-pound dumbbells? Was it 90 pounds? Actually, you, you're shorting me a little bit. That was 120 dumbbells in each hand, you know, doing a <laughs> in, incline dumbbell press for, for the chest muscle. Oh, man, that's pretty impressive, man. I, when I saw that, I said, this guy goes full steam ahead. I like that. <laughs> now, it's, 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 it's a lifestyle for me. So. And I got to tell you, I'm a new fan myself. Um I listened to, knowing that we were going to talk today, I listened to some of your music, and I had to stop and catch my breath, literally, man. I heard I heard 427 Mass Avenue, and then after that, Grand Central, and I just had to pause. It was it was great music, man. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Oh, no problem, man. I'm just trying to uplift people with, with my music, and I'm just hoping to brighten someone today. So you play all the rhythm section instruments, uh, piano and drums and vibes, correct? Yeah, I also play a tab at a bass too. Uh, it's it's not to the point where I'm actually going to play bass on someone's uh, performance, but I can definitely get around and you know play. Like I said, I can play a little bit. Which instrument was first for you, and then how did you divide your practice to the point that you became good on all of the instruments? Uh, so my practice schedule uh, as a kid, going back to your. Uh, when I was uh, three years old, my dad had me practicing uh, from 5.30 to 7.30, you know, practicing multiple different instruments, uh, you know, ranging you know, half hour on the drums, half hour on the xylophone, and another half hour on the piano. And on the weekends, I took private lessons uh, with members of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra at the Peabody Preparatory. So that lasted about uh, almost another eight, eight or nine years. And... Also, um, during the summer times, my dad, we our practice schedules, they doubled. So we practiced uh, uh, in the afternoon from 1 o'clock until 2.30, and then they came back around from 5.30 to 7 o'clock. So a lot of, lot of years of practicing. 
Wow. So how how did you get connected with the Baltimore Symphony musicians? I think from if I can recall, see my dad. He gave me. He was like my first teacher, so we we practiced a lot at home. But he could only give me so much technical information about the instruments. So the best place or the best teachers, I should say, who was going to give you that ability to learn everything technically about the instruments is is some type of classical teacher. So Peabody, in general, as is a part of John Hopkins University, is one of the best schools in the nation. I would say, in my opinion, it's like in the top five. So it was like a no brainer to go ahead and enroll me there. So I could, um, you know, be with the, some of those teachers there. And I, th- I believe at the time they only had like maybe three teachers who were at Peabody. Two of them just happened to be in the Baltimore Symphony. But we happened to pick the one and he's now he's not with us anymore. His name is Leo LePage. We decided to go with him because Leo was also a um, not only was he a classical musician, but he was also a, uh, a former jazz drummer who spent time in the Boston area playing a lot of jazz uh, shows before he became a member of the Baltimore Symphony. So in the beginning for you, did you like playing the instruments or was it more of a chore? At oh, first? no. I pretty ha- I hated it. <laughs> okay. When did you begin to develop a love for it? I would say I started loving music around, this is around 1989 or 90 when I was a student in middle school. Uh, we had a pretty good uh, music program in my middle school. We had a, a wind ensemble or an, an, uh, what would we call it? Well, we called it a one ensemble, and we also had a jazz band. But we didn't play necessarily like jazz songs. We played like pop arrangements just in a, in a jazz setting. Um, so that's when I really started to enjoy it there. And I remember the day because I, I took a solo on a, a particular song. I think I was playing a keyboard on a song called Louie Louie. And oh, yeah. I took a I took a solo on that song, and my classmates just erupted. They were like, "Wow, Warren, you sound great!" And I thought to myself, I said, "Wow, if I can get this um, type of appreciation playing music from my classmates, what can it be like eventually later on in life?" So I would say from the seventh grade on is when I really started to take music seriously. Now, one thing that people say stands out about you is your ability to internalize a piece of music after hearing it or reading it once after a few mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah. How do you get, how do you get to that point? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I, I, I really don't know. It's, it's something like music is just inside of me. It's, I mean, it's just really like deep inside of me to the point where I can just hear it. And after a few go throughs, I, I hear everything, I guess. If I had to give a clear answer, because of my knowledge when it comes to the entire rhythm section and, and horns, you know, I don't play horns, but I when I listen to music, and it's, I'm not talking just jazz, I'm talking about any style of music, I listen to everything that's going on, from the rhythm to the bass notes to what the piano is playing to the, what the horns are playing to, to, to what the vocalist is singing. I try to listen to everything, and I and I take every bit of it and I put it inside of me, and out comes what you hear. So you, you just have to be... A listener. It's like when you're having a conversation with somebody. If somebody is is talking about is if A and B is talking about one thing, C can't just come out come out and just say something else. You have to be you know just be in it with them. So I kind of look at music like that for the most part. You, it's having a conversation, but the conversation has to make sense. That's true. And I I'm gonna also uh, take a guess because you started playing so young. You said music is a part of you. And I think that's I think that's a literal statement, because when your body physically touches the keys on the piano, for example, or if you're holding 
a mallet in your hand, you know, that, that wood is striking the, the bar, you feel the vibration. You can feel the note. Definitely. You know, and it, and it, can, it literally connects to your body. So I think maybe when you hear some music, that, can, that is literally connecting to you. And be, it's an extension of you. So you can identify it. Definitely. All the way. And I didn't notice. I mean, I, I, when I think back to it now, you know, it was definitely an extension of me when I was a kid. I just didn't know. Like, you know, one of the great things that I, I possess, you know, I have perfect pitch. But I'm not talking about just like hearing one note and being able to play it back. I mean, I could do that, but it's to the point where I can hear close to like five or six. Well, let's just say five to ten notes all at once and, and play every one of them back to you. Um I don't know. Music, like you said, music is an extension of me. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm in sync. <laughs> you have performed with a who's who of musicians. Where did that begin for you the first time? The first time in my memory that I can really perf- recall performing with somebody who was like, that had a name recognition, I was probably eight years old uh there's a drummer here in baltimore his name is william goffigan he's a he's a local drummer here in baltimore but he he actually did some work outside of baltimore but anyway we when i was about eight or nine he had this uh studio session that he was doing a new record and you know i was just the, the little young kid in baltimore coming up and he said man i'd I love to get you on a, a few tracks and you know back then i think the only thing that i could really seriously play was the blues but uh you know, he named some of the musicians that were that were on the that were going to be on his recording, and one of the names that he said was Cyrus Chestnut. I had no idea who Cyrus Chestnut is or was at the time, and I didn't know who Cyrus Chestnut really was, who he really was, until I would say maybe fifteen years later. I just knew he was just uh, one great pianist who came in and was was playing a lot of piano. I was just kind of amazed at that. So. It started then, but really, like when I'm start starting to re- try, trying to remember things in college when I was at Berkeley, when um I was a uh, a student, I was kind of like in the, the hot band of students. You know what I mean? It's like when whenever a visiting artist came to Berkeley, they would call upon these students to come and perform with them either in their master class or their concert. So one year. We had uh, master drummer Mr. Lewis Nash come up to do a, a clinic, and Berkeley they called myself to come play vibes and uh, Walter Smith on tenor saxophone and a bass player by the name of Mark Kelly, who's now the he, he was playing a lot of upright at the time, but right now he's playing um, electric bass for the Roots. So we played this um, concert. And, you know, it was, we had a lot of fun. And, and Lewis told me after after um, the show, he said, man, let me have your number. You sound great. And Lewis never called me, at least not not right away. I would say a few weeks after that, Mulgrew Miller gave me a call. And uh, he said, hey, Warren, I, I, I got your name and number from, uh, Mr., uh, from Lewis Nash. I would like to know if you can make a, a two-week tour with me in Japan with his group wingspan. So I was subbing for our vibraphone to Steve Nelson. And I said, sure, you know, and from, we did the tour with Mulgrew and on that tour, it was myself, Steve Wilson, Dwayne Eubanks, Mulgrew, Derek Hodge, and uh, Kareem Riggins. So we had a great time in Japan, you know, that, that came as from Lewis Nash. 
And then I would say about a week later, I got a call from Tim Warfield. He he called to say, hey, I I, I through Margaret Miller. I'd like to know if you can uh, sub for Stefan Harris. So I'm taking my band down to Jazz at the Bistro in St. Louis. And that band had myself and Nicholas Payton. Terrell Staff played one night. Um, Tim Warfield again, Kevin Hayes, Brandon Owens on bass, and Clarence Penn on drums. So that's kind of like the beginnings of, of how I started meeting people who, who had some type of name. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, I really didn't know who they were in the beginning. But, you know, after doing some research, I was like, wow, I'm really on stage with these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I wonder if it was almost a blessing that you didn't know, <laughs> you know, so you could play your best. I don't know. Kind of. But, but you know, I mean, I, slowly things happen, man. I mean, it just it's amazing how you just, once you do concerts, you start meeting one person and the next person. Yes. You know, my whole history of it was when I first, a- a- Antonio Hart, he's an alto you know from he's from baltimore and he used to come over to my father's house and take lessons when, when i was a kid so um when antonio came out with his first record which is titled for the first time on rca novus back in like 89 or 90 the names that hit that he had on that record were christian mcbride margaret miller and uh very hargrove and lewis nash so i had an idea of who certain guys were but i didn't know what they sounded like or what they played so i remember vividly i went to the record store one day with my mom and i saw christian mcbride's first record getting into it i said wow hold on this is the same bass player who who was on antonio's record he sounded pretty good on there so let me just pick up his record and see what he's dealing with i had no idea who who's who the musicians were on christian's record which just happened to be joshua redmond and steve Teray, and uh, mill hinton and, and ray brown i didn't know who those guys were but you know i just kept buying records because i picked up one and then I saw people's names on other records that who were from that previous record. So that's how it worked for me. Your first two recordings were as a as a solo artist were on M and I label based in Japan. Yes. Why did you choose the Japanese label and how did that benefit you? I shouldn't say I chose them, but they actually chose me. I got with the Japanese label through my association with Mark Miller on that two week tour uh, of Japan. So when we did the two weeks, we I met the producer over there and he told me, he said, Warren, I, you're a great player and I'd like to try to help you to uh, advance your career. I mean, nowadays, from what I see, there's not too many artists who can just come right out the gate and, and get a major record deal. You have to start somewhere with a smaller deal. So he said, you know, we'll help you, you know, have a, um, a great name here in Japan off of these two records. So we started with the first record, uh, Incredible Jazz Vibes, which featured myself, Margaret Miller. Of course, I had to get Margaret because he helped me get the deal. And uh, Kendrick Scott and Vicente Archer. That record was a success. And we went on and did the second record on that label, Black Wolf, which again featured Margaret And this time we featured Jeff Tane Watson, Rodney Whitaker. So the record deal, I mean, the, the, that company, they, they kind of found me, I should say. So today you're with Mac Avenue. Is that true? Yes, I've been with Mac Avenue for about four years now, four or five years. So did you go straight from M&I to Mac Avenue? You can kind of say that because eventually, like a lot of uh, small labels, you know, eventually they fold. Some of them keep continue to go because, I guess, lack of funds. Who knows? After the M&I thing ended, because I just did two records for them, I just kind of freelanced and did a lot of gigs. So one of my good friends... Uh, her name was Tia Fuller. You know, she, we, we were just good friends outside of music. Uh, one day when, when she had just signed with Mac Avenue, she actually called and said, hey, would you like to play uh, three songs on my next record? You know, I, it would be nice to have vibes on there to complement the saxophone. I said, sure. Now, the guys at Mac Avenue, they've never heard of me at this point. So when we did the records, they said, you know, that kind of put the bug in their ear. Like, wow, who is this guy? We've never heard of him. That started the buzz right there. And then I guess what topped it all off was when eventually when I joined Christian McBride, 
Tribe's band. And when Christian first signed with Mac Avenue, we did his record, Kind of Brown. And right after that record, that's when in, uh, Mac Avenue started talking. They said, hey, you're a great uh, musician. We'd like to sign you. Ever since that record came out, I've been with Mac Avenue. Please educate us a little bit because many of us don't know what it really means to be signed with a label like Mac Avenue. So when they are asking you, let us sign you or please sign with us, what is what does that really mean? Hmm, nobody's ever really asked me that. I think what it really what it really means is they want they want their name on your records. They want to be known as the as the best label out in music right now. As in, if you look at their titles, uh, you know that pretty much goes with Mac Avenue. You'll always see the, the the slogan, "The Road to Great Music." So that's number one. What it, what it also means is is that they are, I, I will I'll have the chance to. Um, have my music promoted all around the world in places that I normally wouldn't be able to get to to say if I if I did a record myself and um, that's pretty much it for right now the business has changed so much because from what I heard now with uh, you know a long time ago record companies they will give you tour support money uh, they will actually find tours for you but I don't think it's like that too much anymore nowadays uh, but for right now it's just a great way to to get your album promoted you can pretty much get some of the best musicians possible um, from around the world because you know you can beat the beat the their fundings I said or I, I think you know so that's pretty much it right there so there are some musicians who have the chops to play, but they don't really know how to start their career. And I learned about you that you were teaching in Boston for a couple of years. And then you said to yourself, I want to be a full time musician. So where did you start? How did you approach that? The best way to start to, to start getting your career and I look at musicians, especially, you know, coming straight out of college. This is the best advice that I can say, because a lot of musicians, when they come out of college, they all of, all of a sudden they just want to go to New York and they want to tour the world with their own bands and everything. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that cannot happen, but it's not often that that's going to happen. There's very few people who come out of college and just start touring. It, it takes a while. So basically, myself and like many others, we, you have to go on and do the, um, the sideman thing, meaning... You have to find somebody who's already established and try to get in their band and you tour the world. Maybe you tour the States first or something, but you hit all the different areas. You go to Boston, you're going to play the same clubs up there over and over for about three or four years. You hit the New York area, you hit the Chicago area, down south, the Midwest, and then you hit the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest. You hit all of those areas. So that way you can people can be seen. I mean, you, you can be seen by the people because... Imagine if somebody just came right out the gate with a record deal and, and you know, you might do some gigs, but you might find that your gigs are empty because people don't know who you are. So it's great to be seen by other people once you're with that established artist. So say, for instance, if an artist came out and just started touring with, if, if Joshua Rimmel was looking for an extra, say, a trumpet player in his band, that's a great gig because Joshua tours all the time and you have a chance to be seen. In my case, I had the opportunity to tour with Christian McBride for eight years. So... We traveled all around the states. We traveled all around the world. And eventually, you know, the people will take notice and you'll have new fans that way. And then eventually the promoters will take notice. They said, OK, you know, you're a great guy. We'd like to hear what you sound like with your own band. So uh, that's the best way. You know, you have to do the sideman route. I would say for at least a good part of your 20s, 
And then eventually, in, in the 30s, that's when you start to break out and, and start uh, becoming the leader. And, you know, you do in, in the beginning, you start doing very small gigs that probably doesn't pay a lot of money, but it's not about the money right away. You do a lot of small gigs as a leader uh, in, in your 30s. And then eventually, you know, every year, if you just, if people really look at it, you know, things will get better and they just keep things, you know, your status goes up, the money gets better, you'll do bigger gigs, you'll get the later slots and festivals instead of like, uh, the, the the early slots like 12 one o'clock you know instead you'll get the eight o'clock nine o'clock slots and things like that so great advice thanks for sharing that with us we needed to hear that what are some of your goals when you're writing music because you write some incredible music so what are your goals i would say the number one goal right now is to always create a song that has melody i used to be the type of uh, composer that wanted to write music for musicians meaning i was trying to write songs that had multiple different time signatures and a lot of chords uh you know just so i could impress the musicians i wanted musicians to come up to me and say man that song was nice but you know as you as you mature as as a musician and as a composer you tend to write i mean i guess it depends i'm not gonna say this is about everybody everybody is different you know but for myself i like to create melody i like to create a melody that for like when the audience member leaves my show, my performance, they're going to say, wow, we remember that song, those chords, because it makes sense. Now, when you're doing, if you're composing a song that has like a, a, a different odd meter time signature or a lot of different uh, measured uh, tempo changes and things like that, all of that can work. You just have to be pretty good about it, about constructing it. You just don't want to do it just because. That's like my number one thing is to have a melody. Besides that, you know, a lot of times I actually write songs for my band members. Certain band members play a certain way, so that's going to bring out a certain certain style. You know, all musicians don't play the same. All musicians can't swing. All musicians can't play a backbeat. All musicians can't do, you know, whatever. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. So I try to write for different band members. So those are like the main two things. That's great. Just like Duke Ellington writes for, write for the specific players. That makes your music unique. I think he's the one I got it from. I, I heard him uh, say say that in the books that I read and what people have told me. So I decided to take that same approach. So whatever band that I'm dealing with, I think I'm like, wait a minute, this is what this pianist or bass player or drummer sound like. Let's try to write a song from for a certain member of the band and then I, I keep building around that. Who's in your band right now? I keep the, my band members pretty... Um, in, in the in the you know in the in the same area in the in the home area because it's easy to rehearse. Yes. So bass player, his name is Chris Fun. Uh, he's he's from Baltimore. I've been playing with we've been playing together since we were about thirteen or fourteen. Uh, Chris has been on the road most notably with uh, Kenny Garrett for a few years, but lately he's been out with um, Christian Scott for the past uh, three or four years. He's from Baltimore. The pianist, his name is Alex Brown. He's from uh, Columbia, Maryland. Outside of my band, he's been playing with the New York Voices, and he's been a regular member of Paquito de Rivera's uh, band for the past five or six years. And the drum chair is pretty revolving. I haven't really found a drummer yet who's who can give me everything. You know, the main thing I'm, what I'm looking for when it comes to any band member is that they have to be very versatile. I like band members who can, I like uh, musicians who can play every style, you know, because you never know, you might get into a situation where you show up and it might be a, a you know, a, a senior crowd and you might just want to dig into your bag of jazz standards. So that means you're going to swing all night, but then you might be in a situation where you might have a young audience where, 
you might not want to swing, but you want to uh, do more groove-oriented things. So I like to be prepared all, at all times. So, you know, I really haven't found that drummer yet, but I, I have about four different guys that I'm rotating. Are you a married person? Yes, I am. Because I, I saw a photo <laughs> and I saw the ring, but I thought I still would ask. No, I'm married. I've been married to my wonderful wife. Her name is Heather. Uh, she She's a ballet teacher at a, a private school here in Maryland. And uh, we have a, a beautiful son. His name is Sebastian. Yeah. How old is Sebastian? Sebastian is one. He's one years old. And wow. uh, I also I also have, uh, I mean, I, I got to throw them in there because I, I love all my kids. I have uh, three other kids from a previous marriage okay. as well. So uh, they're, they're living in Boston with their mom. My oldest, her name is Kamira. She's, a, she's uh, 15. She's a wonderful singer. I'm sure you guys are going to hear about her eventually she's not going to be in the jazz world because i i asked her i said hey do you want to sing jazz in daddy's band she said dad i don't like jazz oh man that's good so, at least she was honest yes no, that does i appreciate that so. yeah and she knows and she knows what she doesn't like that's a step yeah. in the right direction that's right <laughs> yeah that's great so i'm looking for people who are married you know because i personally don't know married musicians that are performing on a high level i know they exist mm-hmm. i don't know them no, there, there's there are a few of them out there. Yes. You said, how does it work? How 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 have how does it work for you? What have you found to make it happen? What do you mean? As far as what? You're performing a lot, so that I know that takes you away from home. So how how are you able to, I guess, balance the uh, mm-hmm. family life and work? Oh, I got you. Well, number one for for those people out here, you know, who is listening and who wants to get married, it is very important to find that partner. I'm speaking to uh, the. The, the men and women it's very important to find that partner who understands what you're doing who who's going to be there for you you know 100 percent. because being a full-time musician is no joke especially if you're like really good you're going to be called a lot and you're going to be away from home a lot so um you have to find that partner who, who's going to be in support of you my wife she's very much in support of me because she's an artist as well she's a um a former dancer. I mean, she'll dance every now and then, but you know, she she did she did ballet for years, and she's traveled the world as well. But the life, the span of a, the career span of a dancer really, pretty much ends around the age of thirty four, thirty five, depending on how, you know, how how great of uh, shape you're in. And my wife, she's in great shape because she's a personal trainer. But she decided to move on, and um, you know, become a teacher. It's that way she can give back. So we balance it out. We we have a great relationship with that. Also with the, with the creation of, uh, you know, FaceTime and stuff like that. When I'm gone, I can still see them all the time. I might not be there physically, but we call each other. We spend a lot of time, I guess, the, the, you know, to wrap all of that up, the, the key word is communication. <laughs> yes, yes. So we talk, me and my wife, we talk all the time. That's and good. Far, far as the baby go, I mean, he's still young. He's only 15 months. But I mean, he can he can talk. He's not putting together full sentences. But when we talk, you know, he definitely sees me. He knows his daddy. So you know, it's tough. It's tough on me. I'm assuming it's tough on him. But you know, we'll make it work the best way possible. I was on the road when my oldest son, my firstborn, turned over for the first time. I was upset. I was so mad because I knew it was coming and I missed it. I was so mad. I was mad about that. But nah, trust me, it's, it's all about communication. And yeah. I, I'll tell you, I'll share, share this with you. I actually missed his birth. He he was born, you know, back in April of uh, last year. 
Uh, and I missed his birth about 20 minutes because I was getting off of a flight. <laughs> Wow. But it, it's fine for us because see, we talked about that. We talked about it way beforehand. I told her, and I said, listen, I, I have to do this tour. And she understands. You know, she was like, no, no worries. My, my mom will be there with me. And, you know, just get off the plane and come there as soon as you can. And, you know, like I said, I missed about 20 minutes just, just very quickly. So, but no, we have a great relationship. We talk a lot. It's all about communication and understanding one another. Okay, I'm going to change gears and I want to get one last story from you. And uh, please tell us about the first time you performed with Christian McBride. That sounded like an interesting story. All right. So I believe this is 2007, somewhere around there, 2008. So I'm sitting at home and a woman calls me. She says, hey, Mr. Wolf, um, I'd like to know if you want to play a week at the village vanguard with christian mcbride and i believe the month was june or something like that and i said stop playing this has got to be a prank call you know christian mcbride doesn't want to play with the vibraphone player <laughs> she nice. says no we're serious we'd like to know if you want to do a week at the vanguard and i said okay so you know they took care of me put me on a train put me in a hotel they rented the vibes and and see at the time christian had this band called the christian mcbride band which was a uh, Jeff Keys, Terion Gully, and, and Ron Blake. So, uh, but he decided to do this band, which was called the Christian McBride Situation, and that was a number of band. It was basically why he called the situation was he just he just wanted to call musicians that he wanted to play with that he's never well that he has that he has not played with or he hasn't played with in in, a, in some time. So he called myself, Steve Wilson, Eric Reed, and Carl Allen to come up and play the Vanguard. So. That's this, sick. That's a sick band. It was great. <laughs> and that week was only supposed to be, that's it. It was just supposed to be one week. And, um, but we were killing throughout the week. And so many people just came up to Christian and said, we know you have your other band with, with you know, with the other guys I just mentioned, but you need to keep this band together. So, wow. um, you know, I didn't really, I didn't, again, this is like the beginning of my touring career for the most part. You know, I did a few tours before that, but, uh, we went down to um, Oro Preto, which is in South America. We went down there and did a gig. And then directly after that, we went and played the main stage at the Monterey Jazz Festival. Um, and while we were in Monterey, we stayed in California for another week. And we um, went into Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. And that's when we recorded... Uh, Christian's uh, debut record for Mac Avenue, kind of brown, and from from there on, I think we toured that record again for like six or seven years, and then we made another record titled People Music, and I, I believe another record is going to be coming out within the next year or so. It's it's going to be a uh, Christian McBride and Inside Straight live at the Village Vanguard. Now I want to point out the lesson to be learned from that story. One of the lessons to be learned from that story is is this that you guys recorded. Uh, you guys recorded the album Inside Brown, which was one job, but then you turned around and you said you worked off of that album for six or seven years. So that's a really good example of uh, putting in the work in the beginning and being paid over time. Warren, you've been great on the show today. Uh, no problem, man. Anytime. And thanks again for pressing play on this episode of Behind the No Podcast. If you like more, go to BehindTheNote.com. We have more episodes for you. And until next time, God bless you. <laughs>